Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is Rebecca Lieb, author of Content, The Atomic Particle of Marketing, The Definitive Guide to Content Marketing Strategy, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2017 this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is the one event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. You will leave the conference with all the materials you need to take a content marketing strategy back to your team and to implement a content marketing plan that will grow your business. To register and get the best price, do two things. First, go to marketingbookpodcast.com and click on the Content Marketing World banner Make sure to go through marketingbookpodcast.com so they'll know I sent you. Seriously, there's a bottle of scotch in it for me for everyone who registers through marketingbookpodcast.com. Then, for the lowest price, when you register, make sure to use promo code MARKETINGBOOK and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of us drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details after the interview. Today, we welcome Rebecca Lieb to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her new book, Content, The Atomic Particle of Marketing, The Definitive Guide to Content Marketing Strategy. Rebecca Lieb is a strategic advisor, research analyst, keynote speaker, author, and columnist. Her areas of specialization are digital marketing and media with a concentration in content strategy, content marketing, and converged media. Rebecca works with many of the world's leading brands on digital marketing innovation, and her clients range from startups to nonprofits to Fortune 100 to even regulated industries. Earlier, she was Altimeter Group's digital advertising and media analyst, where she published what remains the largest body of research on content marketing, content strategy, and content's role in paid, owned, and earned media. Prior to that, she was vice president of e-consultancy, where she launched the company's U.S. operations. And prior to that, she was VP and editor-of-chief of the Click Z network for over seven years. And for part of that time, she also ran searchenginewatch.com. And of great interest to marketing book podcast listeners, she has written two previous books, The Truth About Search Engine Optimization, an Amazon bestseller, and Content Marketing, which was one of the first books on that topic. And interesting fact, she is a former film critic. Rebecca, congratulations on content, the atomic particle of marketing, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. 
Doug, thank you so much. And thank you very much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Well, it's my pleasure. And I have to say that I have been following you for years. You know, you could use the word stalk, but it's all legal. And I've been you know, <laughs> reading you and listening. And I remember listening to a interview you did on Todd Wheatland's podcast a few years ago where he would- interview. I remember doing that one. Yeah. I mean, it was a great podcast. I don't think he, he has time to continue it, but it was so interesting. And you talked about earlier in your career, you were a film critic and you even lived in Germany. I did for eight years. That's great. Well, I lived there for just three, I think before you were there. So it was, of course, I zeroed right in on that. And a few years ago on a po another podcast, I was listening to you. I heard you say, and I can't remember which one, I heard you say that content was the atomic particle of all digital marketing as if I were on the elliptical trainer and I stopped and got off. <laughs> it really resonated with me. And, and then I found an article you'd written about that. And I've since used that concept in presentations and blog posts. I even created a, a graphic about it. So I think it was last November, November of 2016, I learned that you were working on the book, the same name. And I reached out to you. And now here it is the summer of 2017. I finally get you on. Really and the excited. book finally exists. <laughs> Right. Yes, that's right. It's it's physical matter now, to use mm -hmm. a, an atomic expression. And I look forward to seeing you speak at Content Marketing World this September. I look forward to being there and to seeing you in person. I, I'm excited. So let me just start with an opening excerpt and go from there. I just It was from the very beginning of the book, and I, I absolutely loved this. Ten years ago, the extra magic ingredient was search. Before that, it was email. For the past five years or so, social media has been the de rigueur term to describe product and service offerings. Suddenly, all that is changing again. Marketing can't be cutting edge in the digital sphere unless it's connected to the word content. This is both good news and bad news for those of us who have been preaching the content gospel for years, even before and during the whole search thing. Suddenly, suddenly, content <laughs> matters. It has taken center stage. It is noticed, acknowledged, and important. That's the good part. What's the bad? With attention and a bit of notoriety comes backlash. Backlash is inevitable. It's human nature. It happens with celebrities, health fads, diets, fashion, and whatever is at the vanguard of digital marketing and technology. So, Rebecca, you mentioned in the book that hating on the word content is like a chef saying, I don't make food. What is the issue with the word content? You know, you're going to have to ask somebody who has an issue with the word content because you need to use it to describe all that stuff that comprises content. Content is text. Content is images. Content is video. Content can live in ads. Content can live on social media platforms or in apps. Content can be populate a newsletter or an email. So we need this all-encompassing, all-embracing word for the stuff that we consume when we're on the internet. All that stuff in all of its myriad channels and media forms is content. If somebody's got a better word for it, I'm open. <laughs> so perhaps for folks that may be listening to this for the first time, they're not quite as familiar with content marketing. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Content marketing is very simply creating content so you never want to use the word in the in the definition but creating media articles movies images that 
promote, entice interest in your products and services. But by definition, Content is a pull strategy. It's not a push strategy. A push strategy is advertising, which is interruptive. Advertising says you can't go further on this page or you can't watch this television show or video anymore unless you listen to a message from our sponsor. Content is ideally so attractive that a viewer or reader tunes in. They want or they need that information when they're considering your product or service, when they need to educate themselves about your product or service, or when they're in a buying mode. So it is, you know, as, as, as has often been said in digital marketing, the right message to the right person at the right time, and the person is the one that makes that determination. And I know you probably won't hear this from any other person that interviews you about the book, but when I started reading your book, I was reminded of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. <laughs> oh, good Lord, really? Why? <laughs> because of the very first sentence of the book. It's a different sentence. I mean, in other words, that starts with... It, it uh, didn't start call with me Ishmael. Call me Ishmael. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the very first sentence of the very first chapter, I knew I was in for a ride, and I want you to explain this first sentence. You said, we are tuning out the noise. Yes, we are. Look at at what's going on with digital advertising. I recently, one of of the chapters in the book, in fact, is called The Eclipse of Online Advertising. Viewers and, and internet users hate ads. They're using ad blockers. They're not recalling the ads that we believe that they do see. They're doing anything that they can do to not see advertising on on the internet. And then there are entire platforms like iOS, if you've got an Apple iPhone or another Apple mobile device, that block out ads entirely. This is another reason why content is so critical to marketers right now. Banner ads and other forms of paid media of internet advertising are not, they're never going to go away entirely, but they are drastically decreasing in efficacy. Publishers will argue about that and tell you that their platforms are fine. But if you look at prices, they're getting lower every single year for programmatic advertising and digital display advertising particularly. So marketers are absolutely challenged to cut through that noise, to cut through all the screaming and yelling and Times Square billboarding and create content that viewers want, need, or are helped by seeing or consuming another, you know, not necessarily visually, maybe it's reading. And there are all kinds of numbers <laughs> to back up what you just talked about. So it's, this isn't some notion out there for, for marketers, but it might, you know, I like to think it's like them some sort of 100 year muscle memory <laughs> of wanting to interrupt their way into the consciousness of their customers rather than earning their way in. So Absolutely. You know, the average click-through rate, I think it was last year of a banner ad, is 0.06%. Almost 100%, 94% of users skip video pre-roll ads before they've even gotten five seconds in. 28% of users admit to hiling or cloaking their online activities so that advertisers can't track them on the internet. Only 2.8% think online ads are relevant. These stats just go on and on and on. Bottom line, users hate advertising. 
So true. I wanted to ask you, and you explained because of this, obviously, marketers should shift their funds toward content and away from paid channels. Now, we're not talking cold turkey here, but it's going in that direction. You might as well skate to where that puck is going. And not only because of this decreasing efficacy, but also because marketers want to not alienate their customers and prospects. They want to create, one would assume, good experiences for them. I think that's a missing consideration for a lot of marketers. They don't realize what what harm many of them are doing. Maybe it's because they're they can't quantify it, but that's yes, that's certainly another another issue that the smarter ones are thinking about. So you talk about how shifting the media mix away from advertising and into content marketing. It's not just an action; it's like a it's a cultural change as much as as anything else. And you recommend some some key things to help companies you know, refocus their company around more engaging content. Can you talk about the sort of the three mountains there of what the company should be keeping in mind? Well, one of the things I like to focus on is what I call a culture of content. Content can obviously help the marketing division, but there are public areas of companies that can all benefit from creating and using content. Some very obvious ones might be customer care or customer service. Recruitment and retention is another area. Thought leadership is still another area. So I encourage companies to first develop a strategy around content. There are too many content marketers, virtually all companies are engaged in some type of content marketing, but far too few of them have developed a formal content strategy. And I get a little schoolmarmish maybe about this, but content strategy is the blueprint of content marketing. It is figuring out what the business reasons are that you're committing content marketing, what you're trying to achieve on a business level, how you're going to measure it, and how you're going to achieve it. It's also coupling that strategy to the customer journey. Who are you trying to reach online? Where are they? Not just where are they, but where are they when they're in a mood to talk about your or even think about your products or services. If you're a B2B company, you know, maybe Saturday morning isn't the time that you want to be reaching them. They're thinking about recreation and something to do with their family. And then it's getting the right teams together to create and to disseminate content. And teams are absolutely critical. One of the reasons content marketing was initially popular, I think about six or eight years ago, was there was this view that it was an extremely cheap form of marketing. It was, you know, hire an out-of-work journalist, they can blog, and, and we've got content going for $15. But content is more than a blog. Content is social media. Content is your email newsletter and your email communications. Content is speeches, PowerPoints, any kind of industry publication, social media platforms. And as a result, this isn't just about out-of-work journalists anymore or writers. It's about designers, it's about photographers, it's about videographers, even app designers. And also teams include where the content is going to come from. Marketing is great, but marketing doesn't necessarily know the stories that sales knows, or if you're a big box store that your uh, salespeople on the floor know. The people who deal with the customers and, and face 
publicly every day the constituencies that you're trying to reach. And those constituencies can go beyond, you know, just your your clients or your your customers. It can be your suppliers, your partners, etc. It's a very, very complex ecosystem, and it involves multiple people, multiple departments, and multiple systems to really function as effectively as possible. You talk in the book about getting the right teams in place. Of course, what's more difficult than <laughs> than humans and, and finding the right fit? But you, you mentioned that a lot of marketing people, back to the marketing department, you, they have skill sets that were skewed or that are still skewed toward traditional advertising. What what are some of the blind spots that those people with those skill sets are, are having? So one of the one of the blind spots is that advertising tends to be very cyclical. You create a campaign, you get it approved all over the place. I'm obviously taking some shortcuts here. And then that campaign runs for six to eight weeks, and then you do something new. Content never stops. It has a beginning, but it doesn't have an end. And content also has become a very important component of advertising. Sophisticated companies used to start with the creative idea from advertising because it was the most expensive idea. So I don't know, I'm thinking of a slogan, where's the beef or Coke ads life. Mm-hmm. And that big advertising idea was the the dominant idea in all marketing communications. What we're finding out now is that more sophisticated companies are starting with content. They're throwing content out there on, on owned and social platforms, running it up the proverbial flagpole to see what works. And once companies have tested content in multiple channels and with different audiences, they're then extracting from the successful content what will be the next big advertising idea? So where advertising was once the lead in terms of marketing, we're finding advertising is now what comes as a result of content. And I think it's not, it seems like a, maybe a subtle difference to some, but it's, it's, it's really the other side of the coin. Absolutely. And it makes getting these teams together very complicated because you maybe had an advertising agency before. Now you're working with the comms team, with the social media team, with the content team, if you've got a content team. So there are various constituencies involved. Each constituency is going to have its own business priority. And so a big challenge to marketers is orchestrating all of these channels and all of these players to work in content harmony. Mm-hmm. You know, back to the first thing you mentioned about the strategy. You explain that in the book that measurement has to be the foundational principle of content strategy. You know, every measurement strategy needs to focus on a business outcome. What types of things should be measured and what types of things should not be measured or, or shouldn't have such, such attention? I'm so glad you asked that. So first and foremost, I think one of the reasons that marketers avoid committing themselves to a content strategy is, you know, first, it's work and it requires thought. But secondarily, I think that once they have a strategy, it's sort of written in proverbial stone and they're not allowed to change it. You're absolutely allowed to change it. But you can't change what isn't there. You have to have it, you know, written down in the first place before you can adjust and amend and edit. But I'm on a mission for 
marketers to look beyond sales as the sole metric of content strategy. Sales are important and sales are the lifeblood of any business. But I want marketers to think more creatively about things that they can measure that have actual monetary value that you can take to the CFO to prove that your content is working, but are not necessarily sales related. So here's a for instance, customer service. Sony Europe their head of have community there noticed that a lot of customers, and he noticed this because he was talking to the head of the call center, by the way, he was using old fashioned reporting shoe leather. Uh, Sony was getting a lot of calls from customers who didn't understand a feature of one of their TV models. It was very easily explained and it was very easily fixed. What Sony, however, was facing was the fact that every single time a consumer called the call center to find out how to fix this issue, it cost Sony seven years which is roughly $7, to take this call and address the issue. So Nico Hendricks, Sony's director of, of community, wrote a quick piece of content and threw it up on Sony's website. That piece of content got 42,000 views the first week it was up. A content marketer could say 42,000 times 7, we deflected 42,000 calls away from the call center. We just saved about $350,000 this week in channel changes to address a customer service issue. And that amount of money is not peanuts for, for one week. And of course, customers continued to serve themselves on Sony's website instead of Sony's call center. Right. So it's like they were saving money. Okay. But the customer was getting the information in a way they wanted and they were probably saving the customer time. Absolutely. And you can go to your boss and say, look, our content marketing is working. It can take a while to do that sales attribution. But this customer attribution is something you can prove in a week's time. And those are the kind of quick wins that can get teams fired up and jazzed about these these new types of initiatives. You know, another example is a company that makes a toy. It's very Lego-like, but involves robotics. And as we know, a lot of bricks-and-mortar retail stores are going out of business, and the company was having a great deal of trouble marketing its toy because their marketing strategy was all based on merchandising. And if there aren't toy stores, the merchandising strategy goes south in a hurry. So they developed a YouTube channel they were able to demonstrate what their toys do, optimize the videos for search, solicit user-generated video of things that their own customers had created. Now, where virtually none of their business was e-commerce, 50% of it comes through YouTube. Mm. That is a sea change in a business model. Yes. So let's move on. And I want to ask you to – we want to talk about convergence because I mentioned that in, the, in, your, in your intro – want to talk about paid, own, and earn media, is explain that. But also, what's interesting to me is that you, you talk about the, the future of marketing. Is, it, it, this, this convergence is happening. In other words, the, the paid, own, and earned are starting to converge. And if marketers aren't ready for that, they're going to be in trouble. So can you explain what those three things are and, and, and this idea of how they're all coming together? Certainly. This is work I did with my friend and colleague, Jeremiah Aoyang. And Jeremiah and I started talking about how paid media, which is your old-fashioned advertising, that's when you rent time or space from a publisher, owned media, which is content marketing, and earned media, which is when you ask users 
for participation or feedback, so we define that as PR as well as social media, are coming together and forming new types of of media. So, you know, pop question, are Facebook and Twitter paid, owned, or earned media? And the answer, of course, is yes. They're (laughs) paid media. They're converged. They're paid because you can buy advertising on all those platforms. They're owned because if you're a company, say you're the Gap, you largely control what goes on on your Facebook page, you know, obviously within the confines of it being Facebook. But they're also earned because you're asking for feedback and participation from your friends, fans, and followers. Another example, and this is an area in which I've got done a great deal of work is native advertising. And I define native advertising as a form of converged media. It's where owned media content meets paid media, which is advertising. So, you know, maybe you've written the best piece of content in the world, but you're worried users can't find it. So you commission the New York Times or the Washington Post or BuzzFeed to write what used to be called advertorial about that topic or subject. And then you enjoy the paid distribution of owned content. So all kinds of different ways uh, media are, you know, dancing new dances and coming together like in, in kaleidoscopic patterns to form new types of media. I was introduced yesterday to a new publication, a, a new publisher site that isn't a website. They publish on all the social platforms, but they don't have their own destination on the web. So paid, owned or earned media. I don't think consumers are differentiating anymore between which is which and what is what. But as marketers, we want to have everything in neat, clean, little (laughs) different buckets and simple paradigms. So thanks, Rebecca. You're just making it that much more difficult. No, I'm just kidding. It's not my, I'm, I'm just calling it like I see it. I, right. I'm an analyst. I'm, I'm not out there making it happen. That's right. So two of the easiest drinking games for marketers are, first off, listening to a Gary Vaynerchuk keynote and taking a mm-hmm. shot every time he drops the F-bomb. Yep. Okay. And I saw him do a keynote a few years ago and somebody actually counted it out. It was 74. So I wasn't playing that game while I was sitting there watching him, but just in case, go on YouTube. The other is listening to the Content Marketing Institute podcast with Joe Polizzi and and Robert Rose. Two good friends of mine. Great podcast. And they're both great authors. Each time the word native advertising is mentioned on their podcast, you take a shot. (laughs) And they have a little noise they'll play. So let's talk a bit more about Native advertising, and I read in uh, Andrew Essex's new book, The End of Advertising, he talks about how nobody seems to understand what native advertising is. So you touched on it. Can you talk about the pros and cons of native advertising and maybe some of the big mistakes companies are making when it comes to native advertising? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the big pros of native advertising is it's simply more contenty. It, it it addresses a user's wants and needs more than does advertising, which is very interruptive. It can be informative. It can be just as delightful as regularly scheduled programming. What is difficult about native advertising, there are several things, is uh, it doesn't scale very well. You can't take a na- native advertising execution that you've done in conjunction with the New York Times and plop it on BuzzFeed because the New York Times and BuzzFeed are entirely different. The native in native advertising comes from the fact that the content seems like it is native to the channel 
channel or platform upon which it appears. So, you know, programming that's on Nickelodeon is going to look funny if it's on CNN and vice versa. You know, you've got cartoons versus hard broadcast news. So scale is a problem. And also there are problems across the ecosystem for the different players in native advertising. You have agencies, you have brands, you have publishers, and you've got technology companies. Um, On the publisher side, a lot of the sales staff is very inexperienced in selling native executions, very different sales cycle than banner ads. On the production side, you've got to have editorial ability, either on the brand side or the agency side, to create fantastic native executions that are going to look and feel good on those particular platforms. And you also need to really think about what platform fits what subject. There was a whole kerfluffle, for example, when a, I believe it was The Economist or maybe it was Politico. It was, it was I, I apologize to either publication that I incorrectly named, um, ran a whole native advertising campaign for Scientology, a controversial subject at best, and also very strange bedfellows, no matter which way you look mm, at it. I remember that, but I, I too can't remember <laughs> which publication. No, so that, that maybe that's good for the publication that we don't remember. Yeah. You know, but just make sure that you're not mixing chalk and cheese with native advertising and and that the subject matter goes together with the media platform and vice versa. So what then is the difference between native advertising and what people might know as sponsored content on an end? So Sponsored content, you know, these these phrases all overlap. So does the phrase advertorial. Native advertising is a bit of an awkward term. It was it was coined by the venture capitalist Fred Wilson to d- discuss advertising on certain platforms that he specifically had invested in, such as Twitter and such as Foursquare. So he was talking about social platforms and he was talking about content that looked native. To, to those individual platforms. Then the turn got blown out and started applying to publisher sites as well, and that's where the confusion set in. In fact, the reason as an analyst that I tackled native advertising is, as you pointed out, so many people are talking about it, but at that point, it hadn't been defined at all. And so native advertising was quite frankly, whatever somebody trying to sell you something said it was. Very shortly after I wrote my definition report on native advertising, I was asked to participate in a much larger work group with the Interactive Advertising Bureau. They too have come out with a formal definition of native advertising, which is similar but slightly different to my own. So I think as an industry, we're finally agreeing what native is, which makes it a heck of a lot easier to talk about. Right. That's right. So, Rebecca, you've got a chapter on contextual marketing. So mm-hmm. please explain what contextual marketing is for all those listeners who are going to go into the office next Monday and the boss is going to say, hey, I heard about contextual marketing. What is, <laughs> do you know about it? So yeah. what what is it and why do you see a pretty rapid growth and adoption of it coming. Coming, not entirely here yet. So what I'm calling contextual marketing or contextual campaigns is what happens to marketing when it goes 
pretty much beyond the screen. We're entering a world of beacons, of sensors, of IoT, and of digital everything, not just mobile, but smart clothing, smart devices, um, printers that talk to staples and order more ink seamlessly in the background, smart homes, smart thermostats. And this is creating a whole new universe in how companies can create content, how they can communicate with users, and how they can develop new and market new products and services. So let me just give you an example. Um, When you check into MGM resorts these days, if you're a loyalty card member, you don't need to use a key. Your smartphone is your room key. But at the same time, your smartphone is location aware. And as you walk around the resort, the application or the hotel knows where you are and can shoot you offers and recommendations based on where you're standing in the property right now, what's going on right now. Maybe it's dinner time, maybe it's drinks time, maybe a show is about to start, and also based on your interests in history. So you might get offered tickets to Cirque du Soleil tonight. I might get offered a steak dinner because I go there to dine, whereas you go there to see shows. And that's just a for instance. I love a recent example from Marantz, you know, the manufacturer of hi-fi equipment. Does anybody use the word hi-fi anymore? (laughs) I I just did. I'm showing my age of audio equipment. (laughs) I knew exactly what you're talking about, but then I thought, oh, wait a minute. What about the kids? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Audio equipment, speakers, boys and girls. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, their speakers are Internet of Things enabled. So one of the things that Marantz is able to do is see what everybody has named their speakers. And the company noticed they had a huge customer install base with speakers named Bathroom. So they took a gamble. They developed a line of waterproof speakers. They marketed those new speakers by email only to people whose speakers, you know, who had speakers named bathroom and they sold out in two days and their email open rate was something insane, like 48%. Now you yeah, have to be careful about the, the creepiness factor, though, in contextual and marketing. you have to be careful about the creepiness factor. And, in fact, Marantz took that very much into account because they'll also send you an email if you've re-stopped and restarted your speakers. You know, they've got, they've got a, a, a formula, but maybe it's three times in 15 minutes. They'll send you an email that says, can we be of help? Because it looks like you're having some trouble with your speakers. And then if customers get back to them and say, you're freaking me out here. Or how do you even know I'm doing this? They They have carefully crafted a response that resonates with their audience that says, you know, you would expect the same level of service from Mercedes-Benz, for example. And as a brand, we aspire to be that useful to you, the customer. But if you'd like to opt out of these notices, we're happy to comply with that as well. So not being 1984 and big brotherish about this and being creepy is a very, very important component of contextual campaigns. Yeah, and then I guess at the end of that message, it doesn't say, P.S., that's a lovely blouse you have on today. Is that new? <laughs> you look terrific today. That's what I'd like it to say. <laughs> but, you know, we're also seeing context be very useful for, say, an automotive dealer with beacons in their buildings. So if you walk in and turn left and go to the showroom, and I walk in and go right to the service center, we're going to see very different messages or get very different marketing because we're there for two entirely different reasons. That was an area I just didn't know so much about and appreciate you talking about that. Let's just wrap up 
with a couple practical questions for the content marketers out there. And marketers, I guess people, are obsessed with tools as if if you buy the tool, the problem will go away. You know, if you join the gym in January, you'll lose weight and, and get in shape. That's my theory anyway. Why is content marketing tool selection so difficult? There is a proliferating landscape out there of vendors who offer tools to do content marketing. And when I started researching that area, there were maybe 160 or 70 vendors. Now there are about 250 vendors in the space. There's going to be some consolidation. Um, I've identified eight different content tool work scenarios. There's content creation, content measurement, audience and targeting, content optimization, legal and compliance. And then there are three more. It's like the seven dwarves. You can never name all of them off the top of your head. Well, but they don't, yeah, and they don't rhyme. Yeah. But in the book, I break these down and I also have available on my website an RFP guide um, that's free. You oh, don't we'll make sure to, to include a anything. link to that. Because people were having, you know, an RFP for content marketing is not quite the same as an RFP for other kinds of tools. So I'm trying to help explain the content tool landscape, the integration concerns of all of those tools, because you don't, you very much want content tools to play with your social media software, sometimes with your advertising or even business system software like CRM. So it's very important that, you know, no software ever be an island. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So many, many tool considerations to get content done. Well, and the, the, there is so much overlap within some of them. And the, the matrix you talk about is like a filter through which it don't be so obsessed with the tool as try and discern how it's helping you. Mm -hmm. So one other question that I guess I was a little surprised at, but I, I just, cause I, maybe I'm working with smaller companies, but you, you talk about how companies are really disorganized or, or fragmented around this idea of organizing for content. It's like, can you explain the, some of the disconnects and how yeah, they should be thinking about that? This is one of the biggest issues with content marketing right now is that while everybody's doing content and, you know, literally nearly 100% of businesses of any size or scale are doing content, very, very, very few of those businesses have content departments. You've got branding, you've got PR, you've got communications, you've got social media, you've got email, you've got search. Content has not yet been disciplinized and formalized. And one of my disconnects with my adored and respective colleagues, Robert Rose and Joe Polizzi, is that Joe has for years advocated businesses should hire a chief content officer and that that person is going to get it together and all your content problems will be solved. And I don't disagree with him. If you could get a new C-level executive with board approval and, and pay them the appropriate salary, your content problems would be solved. But because that doesn't exist in the real world yet, or only exists as the exception rather than the rule, I've identified six different models that real-life companies are using to get content done and get content organized. And these six models tend to be either 
board or center of excellence models, um, executive boards, editorial boards, that sort of model, or else they are under a senior leader who is not necessarily a C-level executive. So, for example, my friend Stephanie Losey heads content at Visa and her title is head of content. At Dell, she she held the same position. Her title was editor-in-chief. But content does have to have some organization around it, and it also has to be very tightly plugged into all the other marketing functions because obviously content isn't an island. Content needs to be informed by as well as fuel other marketing disciplines as well as other public-facing disciplines in the organization. And just to add to that that's where the culture of content it was almost like having turbocharged organization once they have that when they have a culture of content i, I don't see how they're stoppable at that point mm-hmm. so rebecca if readers took only one thing away from the book what would you hope it would be strategy before tactics know why you're doing content and know what you're trying to achieve because that's going to make doing it so much easier well said. And it just brings to mind, I think it was a Content Marketing Institute marketing prof study that they do every year and they talk about how big round numbers here, but it's like 80, 90% of companies are doing content marketing, maybe 30% think they're effective at it. And that's almost the same number of companies that have a strategy is <laughs> about a third. I often think there's a connection there. Mm-hmm. So what books have inspired your work uh, and career? Oh, boy, all kinds of books. I have so many friends in the industry who have written really wonderful books about content. Joe Polizzi, Robert Rose, Anne Handley, my friend Pete Blackshot, Nestle, my colleagues uh, and former colleagues at Altimeter Group. The list is too long to mention. But I also think that content requires a great deal of creativity and a great deal of openness to the world. So by all means, read the business books, but don't be afraid to stop and smell the flowers and read really inspiring fiction or books about other subjects that are going to open you to new ways of thinking and enable you to show up at the office refreshed and full of new ideas and and charged creatively. That's great, Rebecca. And uh, there's an article that I'm going to link to in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. It was an article that Carla Johnson wrote recently about the best non-marketing books for marketers to read. It was about 30 Indeed, books. I was honored to be included in that. I believe she just published it um, this week, and it was a fantastic list. And it was really a new insight into so many people that I know professionally and didn't know what they read in their free time. I just, it, it was delightful. Yes. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you know of or recommend or are looking forward to seeing? My friends Brian and Jeffrey Eisenberg are publishing a new book about Let's see, the title is Be Like Amazon, Even a Lemonade Stand Can Do It. I just got, uh, I was privileged to see an advanced copy of that and highly recommend it. Oh, wow. I did I did not know about that. I'm going to have to look that Maybe up. Maybe you should interview them. <laughs> Maybe if I knew somebody who, who knows them. Yeah, that, that sounds very interesting. And I've read one or two of Brian's other books. So that's great. Well, Rebecca, how best can listeners learn more about you and your new book? Uh, simple. My website is at Rebecca Lieb, L-I-E-B dot com. And of course, I have an author page and the book is on Amazon and in all the usual suspect locations. Great. The name of the book is Content, the Atomic Particle of Marketing, the Definitive Guide to Content Marketing Strategy. The author is Rebecca Lieb. Rebecca, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. 
Doug, it's I who thanks you and your audience for listening. Thank you so very much. And that closes the book on episode 129 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And to register for Content Marketing World, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com, click on the Content Marketing World banner so they'll know I sent you, and then for the very best price, enter promo code MARKETINGBOOK. And if you have any feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is MARKETINGBOOK or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome Chad White to the show to talk about the new third edition of his best-selling book, Email Marketing Rules, Checklists, Frameworks, and 150 Best Practices for Business Success. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.